Okay, so on this episode of Scotonomics, we welcome Yeva Nersusan. And Yeva is Associate Professor of Economics at uh, Franklin and Marshall University in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. So Yeva's research interests include modern monetary theory, uh, monetary and fiscal policy, financial instability, shadow banking, financial regulation, European monetary integration, post-Keynesian economics and institutional economics. So, Yeva, welcome to Scotonomics. Thank you. It's great to have you. Thank you for coming and giving your Thanks time. Thanks for coming. To yeah. Sure. So, um, the title of this episode is An American Revolution. And that's because that's what it looks like from here in the UK. So um, with, since Joe Biden has been elected as president of the US, he seems to be taking a totally different approach to economics. So do you think that um, saying it's a revolution is just too grand or do you think it is a revolution? Well, if you had asked me this question a couple of months back, I would say a revolution is you know, an apt term. But right now I'm having my doubts because of what's happening with the infrastructure bill and the infrastructure bill was this uh, 2.2, 2.3 trillion dollar uh, proposal that the administration uh, presented sometime, I think, in March. Um, and it included a lot of um, good things like, um, you know, electric vehicle subsidies or increasing the infrastructure, improving infrastructure for electric vehicles as a part of transitioning to a greener economy, for example. Uh, inc it included spending on regular infrastructure, as well as things that um, are usually not part of infra infrastructure bills like elderly care and so on. Um, and so the price tag itself was very, uh, you know, relatively big, right? 2.2, 2.3 trillion. Uh, it was not, you know, we hadn't had anything comparable in a long time. Uh, so that was, that was good. Uh, and uh, but right now, the hopes that it will actually pass and the hopes that Joe Biden is actually standing behind it are fading. Uh, they just negotiated with this bipartisan group of Congress people. They just negotiated or, or senators uh, a bill that's about 900, uh, 900 billion over five years. And it only adds an additional 500 billion of spending. So not very, not very grand, you know, not very revolutionary. Um, there is also a second track where the progressives are going to try to pass uh, other bills through a different process, which does not require the uh, participation of uh, Republicans. So there is still hope that that will pass. Uh, but right now, it's not really clear what's going to happen. The progressives are trying to take a stand. Um, and Joe Biden's instincts seem to be, um, you know, for bipartisanship, regardless of whether it gets the job done or not, right? He's sort of given mixed signals. On the one hand, he says, we want both of these things to happen. The big bill that progressives are pushing for and the bipartisan it's not really clear whether the once the bipartisan passes whether there will be uh, you know enough support from the more conservative democrats to do the other the other stuff in particular because this bipartisan bill just includes what we would call traditional infrastructure stuff and it leaves out a lot of the climate change related spending it leaves out a lot of the social infrastructure kind of spending so um 
Yeah, I mean, if everything that he had proposed, the two bills, the infrastructure bill and then the social infrastructure bill, which adds childcare, um, you know, uh, ch 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 tax credits for uh, children, uh, improved tax credits, um, other things like subsidies for childcare, uh, um, you know, education and so on. If all of that passed, I would call that a revolution. But for now, it's more like wait and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, well, it's not so much, I think, the election uh, of Joe Biden that has changed the policy debate. It's more it's more COVID that has done it, actually, because uh, before COVID, any stimulus with a trillion t price tag would be considered unthinkable. But last May, we had the $2.2 trillion CARES Act, and then we kept, you know, we then had something like $900 billion in December. And then when Joe Biden got elected after that, we had the $1.9 trillion stimulus. So all together, there was $5 trillion of stimulus that Congress appropriated, and none of it had to be paid for in the traditional sense that taxes had to be raised. Um, and, and that that changed things because people can now see, oh, we can actually do trillions of dollars of spending and the sky is not going to fall. In fact, that prevented the sky from falling. And so um, that was, I think, what created the opening for a different kind of uh, policy debate. Uh, I would also say that MMT being out there has helped a lot. Um, even if people don't necessarily refer to it, they don't say, well, you know, MMT says we can do this. Uh, there are still Congress people who say, well, we don't have to always pay for spending, right? And what they have in the back of their heads is an MMT kind of approach where spending doesn't have to be paid for necessarily with tax increases because we have our own currency, we have sovereign currency. Um, so the debate has definitely changed. And even when we were passing the very last stimulus, which was about $2 trillion, the conversation was not whether it's going to add to the deficits and whether that's sustainable or not. What we were talking about was inflation. And that's something that MMT has always uh, maintained that the constraint to government spending is not financial, it's the real resources. If you don't have the real resource space to spend and you increase spending, then you could have inflation. Now, even there, I, I was in the camp that said, no, we're not going to see inflation because there is the economy still has room to absorb more spending without mm -hmm. there being inflation, even though you could have temporary price increases like what we've, we, we've been seeing uh, because there is some pent up demand, right? Um, even though you could have bottlenecks where the prices of certain things could increase because of the unevenness of how demand is spread throughout the economy. Um, and so, you know, those things could happen, but we wouldn't see this generalized continuous inflation that people were worried about. But even the fact that we were talking about inflation rather than deficits and debt, which is what we were doing after the glo uh, global financial crisis, right? We, we had a meager $800 billion stimulus and we did it once and we called it a day, right? So that's the other difference that this time mm -hmm. we didn't just do one package and say, that's it, right? We said, okay, we, we, we do one and we see if the economy needs more. And so we went back and we did a second one and a third one. I mean, there was a lot more opposition to the other two, partly because the first one had worked actually. And so the economy hadn't completely 
you know, disintegrated in a sense. And, uh, you know, the first stimulus put a floor under the economy. And so then people said, well, the economy is doing fine. We don't need the second one or the third one, right? Um, but we still did the second and third one. And that was different from how we did it after the global financial crisis. So, so yes, we, the, the packages were bigger and we did it more than once. And now we're talking about additional spending for infrastructure. So all of that is very different from how things you know, were looking before COVID, right? Rather than before Biden, I would say. I've got to be honest, it does sound revolutionary to us here in the UK to, to, to hear that people are not speaking about deficits and they're speaking about something like inflation instead. Because even our, even our opposition politicians are still talking about taxpayers' money being put into certain areas and worrying about the national debt. And we've yet to have the conversation that seems to be happening in America. So with that in mind, um, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, um, when America sneezes, the rest of the world gets a cold. <laughs> and, um, so what, what, what impact do you think America's much more relaxed approach to government spending will have on the rest of the Western democracies, especially in what I call the 51st state, the United Kingdom? Um, well, I, 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 I don't want to sound pessimistic, but, um, you know, the, uh, the, the retort to MMT is always that, oh, the U.S. can do it, but other countries can't, right? So I'm afraid that that's what we're going to hear this time as well, that, yes, of course, the U.S. has the reserve currency, and so they can spend without worrying, uh, but it doesn't mean that other countries can't. And, you know, it's surprising when it comes out of an economy like the UK, you know, or Germany or France, the, you know, I mean, Germany and France are somewhat a different case because they're in the Eurozone. But um, an economy like the UK, right, it is still, or, or Japan, right, these are big economies, right? And um, for them to pretend that they somehow, you know, are, are, are so much constrained that they cannot engage in deficit spending or, you know, additional spending in, in their country because somehow that's going to um, affect the exchange rate and so on. I think that's, um, that's nonsense, okay? So, uh, uh, you know, MMT talks about currency sovereignty and the UK does have currency sovereignty, right? You have, you know, it has its own currency. Uh, it's not pegged to any other currency. So it is a sovereign currency. Uh, now, the real resource constraints, whether they are more binding for the UK versus the US, we can debate about that, right? I mean, the US is a bigger country. We have a lot more resources domestically. We don't have to rely on imports as much, but we are still importing a lot more, right? And so um, the, the constraints might be more binding for the UK, but we don't know that, right? We we're not even trying to get to those constraints because we're worried about the wrong kinds of constraints like financial constraints, right? So, um, so, so the optimistic answer would be, okay, UK would look to the US and say, hey, they're spending, maybe we can do more of that ourselves. Uh, but the pessimistic side of me is saying, well, there's always this retort that the US can do it, but we cannot do it because we don't have the reserve currency. Yeah. Well, well, let's continue on that theme then if we can, because we've looked at the United Kingdom and you've said that we're not sure what the resource constraints of the United Kingdom is, you know, it's still a large country. Imagine that we're a few years down the line and Scotland is independent and has its own currency. 
would Scotland be too small to think about deficit spending? Is it really about having this kind of financial muscle? And what would be the difference for Scotland taking the approach that uh, America is taking or, or plan to take at the moment? Uh, well, so frankly, I do not know too much about the economy of Scotland to um, give you a very good answer. But um, to the extent that an independent Scotland would have its own currency, um, that would be a positive, right? Because uh, then you can, um, you know, in a way you can decide for yourself whether you want to spend more rather than being in a humor. If, you know, the UK doesn't want to spend more, then you are constrained right? because you're more like a US state rather than the US federal government. So, um, you know, being in would free, free you up in that perspective. Now, that's still not a guarantee, right? That the right policies would be adopted because, um, you know, the UK has currency sovereignty, but it's not uh, using its currency sovereignty uh, in the right way. So the same could still be true of, of an independent Scotland, right? So, um, I mean, it's a necessary condition, but it's not sufficient, right? The currency sovereignty. Now, as far as the real resource constraints, and um, I don't know too much about the economy of Scotland, but just the fact that you're small doesn't necessarily mean that you're not going to be uh, in a good position. I mean, look at a country like Switzerland or look at a country like Belgium, right? They're not very big, but they're still doing doing pretty well, I would say. So j just the size itself, I don't think matters very much. Um, you know, and also when it comes to spending, um, there is just spending indiscriminate, right? Where you just inject uh, spending into the economy. And then there is a job guarantee, which is which is more directed, right, targeted. Mm -hmm. And that's something that MMT has always advocated for, that we do not want this blanket kind of stimulus spending, which some boats, but, you know, leaves some, some behind and it leaves workers unemployed. So in a way, you still have unemployment, but you might be seeing price pressures if you use that kind of approach to policymaking. While if you're using a job guarantee, you are targeting the spending where it needs to go to the unemployed workers. You are using your resource potential to the fullest extent and um, without the kind of price pressures that you would see with a more indiscriminate approach to policy. Yeah, so it, it, it's not the size, it's not the size that's a determining factor, it's how you use a country's resource and an economy the size of Scotland should be in a position to be able to make those choices, the same as America or the United Kingdom or Japan. Uh, right, it can, right? So the size itself doesn't really matter. You could be a small country, but you could have an educated and healthy workforce, right? Uh, and that could be your plus. You could have other things to offer if, you know, to the rest of the world, if that's something you need, because you need to import certain things. And so you might need to offer other things which you can export, right? Um, but you can also sort of look inward and try to be more self-sufficient by using your own resources to their fullest extent, especially your labor resources, right? Which is the most precious resource, if you think about it, and the one that's scarce, but the one that we sort of uh, ignore and we misuse and we don't use fully in, in developing countries and developed ones as well, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to point out that the, the, at the start of the pandemic, Sweden, which is also monetarily sovereign, uh, it's it's... The Swedish corona is not pegged and um, made, made it announced that it was making a huge infrastructure spend on its railway system. 
So, uh, yeah, the size of the country is, uh, is it's a highly educated, advanced economy. Right. And, and with something like a job guarantee in place, um, you know, the good thing is that it's automatic, right? And so I guess I should define what a job guarantee is. I keep talking about it, but I'm not sure how much your viewers would know it. So it's a, uh, at least in the U.S. context, the job guarantee is a program uh, that MMTers have been advocating for where, uh, you know, the government offers a job to anyone and everyone who's willing and able to work for, a, you know, fixed wage and benefit plus benefits. And that effectively puts a, puts a floor under wages. So it, it effectively creates a minimum wage um, because if you have unemployment, you know, you, your minimum wage is basically zero, right? So uh, it creates an effective minimum wage and it, um, you know, the funding is federal, but it can be um, decentralized where local governments and NGOs can be involved in the implementation. Uh, but the good thing is that it automatically expands if you are in a situation like COVID or a recession, because there are now more unemployed workers who are eligible for the job guarantee or who want to work in the job guarantee. Um, and then in a recovery, the opposite happens. People find work in the private sector and the pool shrinks. So in that case, you don't even need to pass uh, a bill and further bill for people to get a job. The job guarantee ensures that as long as they're unemployed people, you know, this federal spending will expand. Um, or if there's more unemployed people, the federal spending would automatically expand and then uh, and vice versa. So it's an automatic stabilizer for the economy. So 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 yeah, but you've mentioned MMT a few times and you've just spoken, you've just walked through the job guarantee. Um, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding about MMT in, in Scotland as there is kind of globally. Would you be able to just give us a little bit of a summary on, on what you view MMT and how it can be used to look at an economy? Sure. So MMT says that uh, a country that has its sovereign currency, that is currency that you issue, that is not pegged to another currency or a basket of currencies or a, a metal like gold, which doesn't really happen anymore, but used to. So if you have a sovereign currency, then you're not financially constrained. And uh, a government with sovereign currency um, spends by basically crediting bank accounts. So if I, if the government needs to make a payment to me, it gives an instruction to its central bank, and then the central bank gives an instruction to my bank to credit my account, while the central bank credits the bank's account at the central bank. So that's how spending happens, okay? And taxation sort of reverses that. Um, so from that perspective, the government is not financially constrained because it's not constrained in its ability to credit bank accounts, right? All it needs is a computer, uh, you know, and, and it can do so. So that's why MMTers often say that the government spends through keystrokes, okay? Because, you know, you have to uh, put in the numbers in your computer. So um, that does not mean that the government is not constrained at all, right? Because that's one misinterpretation of MMT, that because it says there are no financial constraints, that it's claiming that there are no constraints, which is, of course, not true. Uh, we are de-emphasizing the financial constraints and we are elevating the real resource constraints, which is the real issue when you're thinking about government spending. Because government spending is about mobilizing resources for using for the public purpose, right? So uh, the resources is what you have to worry about. Do you have the resources to do what the government wants to do? And do you 
uh, do you have the right kinds of resources, right? The right mix of resources. So, um, you know, if you think about World War II, right? The issue was not money. The issue was, do you have enough steel to make weapon weapons, right? <laughs> that was really the issue. And, um, you know, if you didn't have the real resources, it would not matter how much money you have, right? And how much money you raise through taxes. So, um, you know, government spending, if you if you want to spend more, then you need to have real resource space in your economy to accommodate that spending, right? That's really the constraints that MMT emphasizes. Uh, thinking about climate change, right? Fighting climate change. It's not a monetary problem. We have the money to do it. Um, it's really a problem of whether we can we have the resources to transition in i mean we have the resources to transition in general the question is whether we can do that in a limited amount of time like 10 years right and if you don't have the resources then you can create inflationary pressures okay uh, so if you are competing with the private sector for steel right then you can raise the price of steel and then that can have impacts on uh, prices in general in the economy or if you are if you need oil to transition, right, and then you're raising the price of oil, then that can be, uh, that can, in the short term, right, that can present problems, for example. Um, so MMT also does not say let's print money and spend. That's another misinterpretation. So, uh, you know, it's like instead of tax and spend, we're saying let's print money and spend. And that's not what MMT is saying. We're not saying we need to change the procedures. We need to stop issuing bonds. Right. Even in the current framework where we're issuing bonds uh, to cover the deficits, we can still spend uh, without financial constraints. Right. Uh, now, some MMT um, economists have advocated for stopping uh, issuing bonds altogether. Right. So you can think of it as a policy proposal, uh, as a prescription rather than a description. Right. Uh, but that's not necessary. So you know, we can debate the merits of that and it might be useful for some countries and, and not so much for others. But uh, even within the framework where we issue bonds, there is no financial constraint because bonds and currency are the state's liability, right? Um, we understand that bonds are a liability. They're an obligation because they have to be paid back. What we don't understand is that what they're being paid back with, the currency, that's also the state's liability, right? So we're exchanging one liability for another when we're paying off the debt or when we're making payments on the bonds, right? And there is no uh, limit to how much of that you can do because the way you are paying back the debt or making payments on, you know, interest payments on the debt is, is the same way that you make any other payment, you know, crediting bank accounts, what I mentioned at the beginning, and there is no limit to that. Now, uh, there that does not mean that we want high interest payments, for example, or you could still argue that, you know, government debt is disproportionately held by those who are already well off or rich. So there are inequality, you know, inequality issues there that we need to be mindful of, of inter if interest rates are high, right? There is more interest income flowing into the economy, but it might be flowing into the wrong pockets. So, that's something we need to worry about or we at least need to think about, right? But that does not change the fact that the government is not financially constrained if it has its own currency. So I would say the two misconceptions are first that we need to print money for all of this to work, right? When MMT says no, even within the current framework where we issue bonds, it's still true that the government is not financially constrained. 
Uh, and the second misconception is that when we say there are no financial constraints, we are saying there are no constraints at all, which of course is not the case because there are real resource constraints, which can be binding for especially some developing countries. I really like that you said it's a um, description, not prescription. I think that's really powerful because I sometimes fall into that trap of trying to explain what MMT is by saying what we should do with the understanding rather than explaining what MMT says. So I love that description rather than prescription. That's brilliant. Yeah, so uh, I saw a fantastic tweet re recently by the um, Royal Society of the Arts and um, there uh, they, they said something really interesting, which was um, today's leading women in economics are putting life at the centre of the economy uh, instead of the economy at the centre of life which I thought was lovely. Um, and and, and what, do, what do you think about that? Um, well, I think uh, feminist economics has always uh, s sort of maintained that if you uh, bring in more women into eco economics as a profession, then the focus of economics itself is going to change, right? Things that um, weren't studied before will be studied because women bring a different perspective to issues. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that's true. And I think that should be the focus of economics, right? Um, uh, the provision, the social provisioning process and how we go about the social provisioning process, right? And that the economy should, um, serve us rather than us serving the economy, which is, of course, um, the case now, right? It's it's like workers are this um, uh, resource that, as I said before, we undervalue that is put into this machine, and what comes out of the other end is just stuff, right? And uh, and yeah, and there is less focus on well-being, and and there is more focus on things like GDP, uh, right? And uh, which increasing GDP is not necessarily a good thing for the standard of living. And even if your material standard of living is, is increasing, then th that doesn't necessarily mean that you're better off as, as a human, right? Because that could be at the expense of you're working more, you have less time for leisure, less time for family, right? So things like that, that, uh, you know, a woman economist could bring into focus and uh, things like that, that have stayed out of the um, center of economics for, uh, for quite, quite some time. So leading on from that as well, I, I saw another uh, quote recently where um, there has been some research, actually, it was a recent poll from Axios, a momentous stating that just half of younger Americans now hold a positive view of capitalism um, and socialism's appeal in the US continues to grow, driven by black Americans and women. So do you think socialism is growing in the US? Um, it's hard to it's hard to say. I mean, younger people in general tend to be more uh, more progressive, but uh, the older they get, and the, you know, they have a house and a mortgage and and some debt that they have to pay, you know, and and then they start worrying about yeah, taxes are too high and so on, right? So then they become more conservative. So um, I don't know. I think it's always like that that the younger you are the more progressive you are and then the older you get, maybe the more conservative you get. So I wouldn't put too much in, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't necessarily um, buy it. I, I think I've been hearing that ever since I got to the US in 2006, that that's the direction we're moving and I don't necessarily see it yet. I sort of see like this um, 
tug of war that their forces pulling in two different directions. And this is where my institutionalist uh, uh, education comes into the picture with somebody like Veblen saying that you're always sort of at the crossroads and you can pick the right way or the wrong way. And so, you know, it could be fascism or socialism, right? So for example, in the 1930s, it didn't have to be <laughs> fascism. It could have gone the other way, but you know, that's the direction it went. So um, especially given the previous presidency, right? I mean, <laughs> it's really, um, and, and how many people still voted for, for Trump. So I think that's a bit of a, yeah. Yeah, not. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, that that's the direction we're going necessarily. Okay, okay. Uh, in uh, 2006, if you had asked me that, saying, you know, 10 years or 20 years later, we will be talking about MMT, it will be in the New York Times, it will be here and there. I would say, you know, when I chose that uh, trajectory, I knew that I was going to be sort of on the sidelines of the economics profession. So I chose that direction. Mm -hmm knowing that I was going to be on the sidelines, I could never imagine that MMT would be debated so publicly and it would be uh, influencing policy someday, right? So, it, yeah. It's, it, it's, it's really interesting because, and I think it's not helped because of the name modern monetary theory, but, but, theory, but people think it's only been around for a few years. Yes. And, you know, and I think that, and, you know, I remember someone saying it takes a long time to be an overnight success. And I think that's what seems to have happened with MMT. And it's yeah. so encouraging that we're having more people aware of it and speaking about it. And um, everything that you've said to us on, on this episode will, will really, really help that education for our, our predominantly Scottish audience. So we're really thankful for the time that you've been able to spend with us. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and thanks for thanks for having me. And the word modern, by the way, refers to the last 4,000 years. It's actually a reference to the <laughs> I mean, I, I, I seriously mean it, <laughs> you know, Keynes talked about modern money, which is state money, basically, uh, right, mm. and credit money, if you will, um, and, and he said it dates back probably more than years, maybe further, we don't know, because, you know, we don't have a record of it, but yeah, that's that's modern. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's also the anthropologists as well, yeah, yeah. Should we be worried about the slight uptick in inflation in the U.S. over the last couple of months? Uh, I, I don't think it's worrisome. Like I mentioned briefly previously, it's uh, that this was expected because we had this period of depressed prices um, during COVID, right? So uh, you know, if that's your baseline, of course, uh, then you're going to see this. Uh, in the higher uh, percentage increase than you would have had otherwise. Um, but also there is pent up demand because um, a lot of people lost their jobs, but a lot of people did not, right? So, you know, a lot of white collar people did not lose their jobs. And in addition, they got the stimulus spending and they also were able to save uh, because they weren't able to spend on anything, right? Nobody was going on vacations or restaurants, you know, movie theaters and so on. So now that spending is flowing back into the economy. So it's normal to see uh, some periods where we would see a higher than uh, usual increase in, in, in prices. But I don't think that's going to be a long-term trend. Um, we live in a different kind of economy with globalized supply chains. I mean, American workers here have to compete with workers in developing countries with much lower wages. And those lower wages in China and elsewhere are putting um, 
downward pressure on prices uh, in, you know, in the U.S. and other developed countries. So I don't think it's going to be a runaway inflation. I don't think it's going to be, uh, you know, prolonged, right? Um, the savings are, you know, there are some savings that people are going to spend, but they are they're limited, right? And a lot of the federal aid is running out in September. Um, unemployment benefits, for example, um, the unemployment numbers are still high. So there is room in the economy to expand without um, increasing increasing prices. So, uh, yeah, I don't think, see that as a long-term problem. Brilliant. It does seem to be a, like a, 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 a coattail that the kind of neoliberals are grabbing onto this idea that there's a little bit of inflation because of all the money that's been injected into the economy. So it's really good for you to explain why that's probably not going to run through the economy in, in the long term. Yes. So Randy Ray and I uh, wrote this uh, paper, which is coming out as a Levy Economics Institute policy brief. I think it's in the final production stages where we talk about the Biden plans and why we don't think it's going to be inflationary. So even if we were to inject that infrastructure spending that we talked about, that would not be inflationary because it's done over such a long period of time. And also, uh, we also address the question of taxes, uh, whether we need to raise taxes or not. And of course, that goes hand in hand with the question of inflation. Uh, th that's one thing that we didn't really talk much about, uh, the question of taxes, right? And um, th that's part of the problem with, that I see with the in infrastructure bills, that they have this case attached to them, that we need to raise taxes um, you know, on corporations, to raise taxes on the rich to pay for this, and which is of course not the case, right? That's the lesson we should have learned from the COVID stimulus, stimulus spending that we don't need to pay for spending necessarily. It's okay that it adds to the deficit, but we did not learn that lesson. So, uh, you know, Biden and, and people who attach those pay fors to uh, spending are the ones who are sort of bringing back this deficit, uh, you know, uh, problem, right? They're saying, well, we can't add to the deficit or we can't, you know, he's pledged not to add to the deficit, he's pledged not to add to the debt. Why not, right? Uh, if, if the economy can accommodate that spending without inflationary pressures, there is no reason why we should not be able to do that. So that's also something we talk about in our policy brief. Yeah, thank you so much, Eva, for coming on to Scotonomics. Did you have any more?